Cambridge Dictionary Definition The ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation. Regardless of the dictionary that you choose to use, the word is empathy. Go! Hello and welcome to this special edition of Fuse. My name is Dan Gold, and on this episode we are speaking to Ed Kerwin, professional storyteller and founder of Empathy Week. I learned very quickly that actually the best way to get my students to do well or to succeed or to, to have some sort of ownership in the classroom of their own studies was to deploy empathy. And I never called it empathy at the time. I never, never even thought of it as empathy. And Claire Bennett from the charity Mind, an organisation that in 2019 to 2020 supported over 333,000 people across many communities. Our main aim is to make sure that people with mental health problems get both support and respect. Um, So we do a range of things, um, campaigning on the issues that matter most to people with mental health problems. PRCA has published its latest global confidence tracker, polling PR professionals across the world about the confidence levels of their organization's future. Southeast Asia recorded its highest levels of confidence, whilst Latin America enjoyed its sharpest rise in confidence since the previous poll in February. To find out more about how your part of the world is feeling about its future, please click on the link in this episode's description. PRCA is proud to support Empathy Week. So, now on to our first of our two featured interviews. With me today, I have Ed Kerwin. Ed has one of my favourite websites that I've seen in a long time. His opening statement on this website talks about storytelling and the formats in which we connect with people. But that's not the reason we're here today. Today we're here to talk about Empathy Week. Ed, firstly, thank you for joining us here on Fuse. Thank you, Dan. Lovely to be here. So, Ed, let's start at that famous beginning. Um, Empathy Week, how did it come about? What inspired you to create it? I always struggle to put this into a short journey because it's not. And I think, firstly, people think that I, I set out purpose purposefully to do this and it was a, an idea from the start and it, and it really wasn't. Um, if you go back uh, six, seven years, I was a teacher in North London, um, straight out of university, through a program called Teach First, which um, some people around the world will recognise, whether it's Teach for America, Teach for Vietnam. There's lots of different versions of it, but essentially you're you're thrown into the education system on your own as a teacher um, with six weeks training and you're given your own classes. So you're not shadowing, they are your classes and it's a baptism of fire and it's teaching is just an unbelievable, unbelievable job. Um, you'll hear that I'm still in London based on some of the, some of the sirens that are going past, but it's an amazing, an amazing, amazing place. And unfortunately there is also a lot of, deprivation there's 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 students uh, in london where they don't get access to opportunities and that was a big big culture shock for me in a way um seeing young people come into school and understanding that their lives are very different back at home obviously you get every student in the same class and you think oh you know they have a similar life but the reality is there's there's varying differences and 
I essentially taught for three years and I was a science teacher, I was a chemistry teacher and I taught from ages 11 to 18. And I learned very quickly that actually the best way to get my students to do well or to succeed or to, to have some sort of ownership in the classroom of their own studies was to deploy empathy. And I never called it empathy at the time. I never, never even thought of it as empathy, but it was asking a student who maybe has just hit someone in a class whilst you've got a Bunsen burner going and there's all sorts of carnage going on. You send them outside to cool off and you say, you don't, you don't shout at them. And instead you say, what's going on? You know, have you had breakfast? How's mum? What's going on? And they're expecting to be shouted at. And all of a sudden you care, but you actually care and you check up on them. And you may two months down the line say, how's your brother doing at school? And they, so they know that you care. And I realized I stepped away from teaching. I essentially burnt out. And then in those three years, three and a half years from leaving teaching to now or leaving the classroom to now, I did a lot of filmmaking around homelessness, around social issues, which is what I kind of sparked the fire in my students with to to get them to care about the world and care about other people as well as themselves and I got to a certain point where I was in India Um, I actually went to the Homeless World Cup which is a fascinating charity and tournament each year and I was in Mexico and it was there that I met the Indian team and the, the Homeless World Cup is essentially 50 teams from across the world that bring people uh, adults young adults who have experienced homelessness or social exclusion and they simply just play football in the tournament for a week and it's there that I met the Indian team uh, who were brought by an organization and charity called Slum Soccer and I went out there to actually help them develop uh, teaching resources leadership material surrounding their program and that's when everything all of my experiences came together and I said I can now use a camera I can produce films and I have a you know a really good understanding of education what do teachers need what do students need and that's where Empathy Week was born, which was this this idea that we were going to film five films each year and we'll surround them with lesson plans and activities and deliver them to schools so that young people can actually see beyond their one kilometre radius that they think is their world and, and is the world and actually see beyond that experience lives of people that they would otherwise never, ever meet, but not just see the, their context, but also reflect that context back on their own life. And you get kids, it's amazing when you watch them and you see, oh, I'm a bit like that and I'm a bit like that. Now we've got children in London, children in America, children in Vietnam relating themselves, maybe not even to another child, to an adult in India saying, oh, I can see a bit of myself in that. And the real magic is that if we can do this year on year, a child that is five years old this year, by the time they're 18 and they leave school and they go into the working world, if they take part in Empathy Week every year, they'll have experienced 65 different people's life stories. And how do we get over our, you know, racial inequality, gender inequality? You know, in the UK at the moment, there's a there's a big movement around gender inequality and sexual harassment based on based on the woman Sarah who who died um, a couple of weeks ago. Actually, three roads away was her last seen location from where I am now. And if we can train young people not just on those issues, but on empathy generally, which is for us creating space for someone else to to express themselves as they are. It's empathy is not compassion, it's not kindness. They're related, it's neutral. Empathy is neutral. It's simply me, as as you are now, trying to understand myself. You're trying to understand me. It's it's this neutrality of like understanding my perspectives, my feelings and emotions. And if you can do that, well then it leads to kindness and compassion, which is centered around what the person needs. So that is a very, very long 
not short introduction to what Empathy Week is, how it came about and what it tried to do. Um, but yeah, that's where we're, we're at at the moment. Empathy is one of the things that I look at as as the fundamentals of, of me as a human being. If I can't start from there, if I can't work from there, what am I doing? I, mm. I, I ignore work or private life, personal life. It's, it's, it's the beginning of everything dealing and engaging with anyone else. Yeah, going back to that classic classic statement of walking a mile in someone else's shoes, where I was looking at what you were were doing with this project and and the empathy and the understanding of other people's journeys and their their trials, their tribulations, their challenges. Um, it reminded me that when I went to school, which is um, a while ago. Um, I won't play guess how old Dan is. I've done it before. It didn't end well. It didn't end well. The takeaway that my class had was we were learning about um, uh, opportunity and wealth gap and and citizens and 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 roadblocks to 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 uh, you know um, healthy living etc. And the one takeaway that my class had was in this um, uh, deprived area, they had televisions. It was like, wow, if that's the number one takeaway from my class, from our teacher, and I'm not criticizing my teacher, but if that is the number one takeaway, oh, they have televisions. There's something wrong in the way that class was taught because it, it was only a few weeks ago I was talking to my friend about this and she said, do you, do you remember that class? Mm. They had televisions. And I'm like, yeah, there's the internet now as well. But none of that is truly relevant to people and their lives. So looking at um, Empathy Week, PRCA came on board and supported this year. I'm super proud that PRCA did. What's it mean to you as someone who's had the vision for this project and it, it fell in place what's it mean to you when you have not only individuals supporting you or educational organizations and the people that you hope to reach support the project but actually uh, organizations external to uh, to um, uh, what you do as a core coming on board raising awareness helping the organization in whatever shape that may take it's it's fundamental isn't it i think everyone can sell themselves and everyone can say what they're doing is great but when you hear it from someone else when when someone else says oh you should speak to that person or you know you should you should maybe speak to that business when you know testimonials they're so important and i know this this isn't a testimonial but it is in a way it's it's an organization getting behind another organization and saying look what these people are doing is great and it's worth your time and that might not you know, lead to anything immediately. But three years down the line, someone might go, oh yeah, no, I've, I've heard of Empathy Week. Or they might become a parent all of a sudden whose child is now in school that isn't at the moment. And they go, actually, I would like my child to do that. And it's, it's, it's crucial. I have, to, I have to actually, you know, call out here um, Youth Sport Trust, which is a, is a national UK charity. Um, and their CEO, Alison Oliver, and I was put in touch through a person, through a person, through a person, you know, how, how it works. You, you meet someone that introduces you to someone else. And I had not done anything at this stage. You know, I'd been, I hadn't even been to India. I'd had the idea 
And I managed to meet her for a coffee in a very wet, rainy London day. And we had half an hour of coffee. And she just said to me, Ed, keep me updated. I can see you're passionate. I can see what you're trying to do and achieve. And we'll try and support you if we can. And six months later, when I came back from India, they said, great, we're going to support you. And we'll help push it out to all our schools that are, are working with us. And that then led to another uh, lead and another organization. And the thing is that there's mutual benefit in, in all these things. At first, I used to think, you know, why are people helping? But actually, collaboration is where everything is at. It, it's it's how the world it's how the world moves around. And, you know, for an organization like PRCA to come on and say, look, we're going to put your put Empathy Week on the front page of, of our website, you know, for no reason, no reason other than they wanted to help us and they, they believe in what we're doing. And I think that's more more and more important as as we go through into this post hopefully post covid world is this idea that you know values aligned organizations support each other just because they can and just because they should and and for no other reason there doesn't need to be all this paperwork and things behind it and you know NDAs and I've just said you know about not using acronyms but you know non-disclosure agreements and you know all of these legal things forms around simply just helping and I think that's that's what happened here it's just spoke to a few members of the team they said we love it and we're going to help and you can't put a value on that really and uh also referring to something that from a conversation we were having before we hit record but almost by osmosis people came on board and uh, that that process of uh, one person the next person the next person uh, you know gravitating towards this it was it was relatively organic and we see so many organizations struggle and i'm sure there have been moments of struggle where you've been banging your head against a brick wall and they have probably been many many hours believing in this knowing that there are these opportunities and trying to get the awareness out there um but it's nice to see human kindness stepping in and making a stand to go you know we align with this we believe in this we think this should breathe this should have an opportunity to be out there ed we've got a couple of clips that we're going to play from uh, pete's video and uh, it's incredibly powerful as 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 a lot of the videos that you've worked on are pete talks about giving mental health a kick and his reaction to his father's his father's death and him taking his own life and and how they've done that. And I think there's a few clips of his mother talking also about, you know, what would I say to, what would I say to Paul? Or I asked the question, what would you say to Paul? And she said, you know, it's right at the end of this bit. It's like, I tell him I love him. I tell him that the the lies that depression told you weren't true. I think there's a really powerful element there. Caring, um, enthusiastic, passionate. Um, he was silly at times as well. He was an amazing listener. Dad would sit there in a conversation and pay such an interest in you as a person. I think, mate, empathy for him. Why is it important? Everyone's come from their own background. Everyone has their own story. Dad just took everyone at, at face value. It didn't matter where you came from. 
that was there. That was a huge part of what, of what Dad you know, believed in massively. How does it make you feel and as a human being when people trust you with these stories? What a question that is. Um, you you have to be vulnerable yourself first before anyone could be vulnerable with you. And I think as time goes on, it's easier for me to, to, to build trust because I have more of a portfolio of what I've done. Um, but l- let me use Pete as an example as, as we're playing these clips. Pete was put in touch with me by someone out by a mutual friend. And all I had to go off was Pete's lost his dad in February. And this was probably, this was probably end of April, May. So three months before, two months before. And I reached out to him and he'd done a video as well. And we went for a coffee and it sounds so simple, but the most important bit about filmmaking and telling a story, it doesn't matter what bloody camera you have, you know, it doesn't matter the settings and all of that stuff. The power in the story is in the relationship you have. And, and there's a huge, a huge amount of pressure. I've, I feel that I've got better at dealing with it, of telling someone's story. Because you can, you can hear it. You know, Pete's film's 10 minutes long. But I spent days with him. Days and days. And hours of interviews. He was a very, very talented sportsman. I guess the way I've been able to... decompress and, and the, 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 that feeling of happiness coming back and almost feeling dad alongside me is in those moments where I'm, where I'm playing. Um, there's a, com- there's a, a competitiveness with it inside me where I feel like I can give mental health a little bit of a kick. It's just a natural way in which I feel I can, you know, act through him and it doesn't mean that Dad's life was a waste, basically. That's the other thing as well, as people say to me, and I know other filmmakers and other videographers who will say, when they're interviewing someone, they'll say, if you can repeat the question back to me and if you can do this, you know, so it's easier to edit. And I understand that. But I don't, but I don't do that. I just let them speak. And I just, I, and if it's, it's more annoying for me to edit, of course it is, um, but it's more natural. And then it's interesting. You never, you never get the golden clips. You never get the golden nuggets of what people are saying in the first 10 minutes. They're usually in the last 10 minutes because you've built people into a rhythm of speaking and opened and, you know, you're there to listen. I tell him I love him so, so dearly. I tell him I understand because I wouldn't want him to feel he'd let me down or he'd. I tell him I totally understand. I totally understand why you've done it and the lies that depression told him weren't true and that he was one of 
life's unique individuals who gave so much and expected so little in return that he didn't deserve that ending. And that he'll never be replaced at all. He said um, the most, two most important things in life were to love and to be loved. That's what he said. People always say to me, oh, do you need to go? I block off my whole day for maybe a two hour interview because it doesn't matter if I need to. I've even Habib, another person I filmed, who was about an hour and 15 minutes across London from me, one day I got there in summer and he just had a bad day and he didn't want to film. And I just trekked all of my stuff on the tube, been wearing a mask for an hour and a half or whatever. And I was just like gutted. But we then just stood outside and he had a he had a smoke and we just caught up. And then the next time I interviewed him, it, you know, couldn't, couldn't stop him talking. It's, it's all about this human relationship and, and trust. And in order to do that, you have to, be honest and open and I'm, I'm so open with what I'm doing. This is what I want to achieve. This is why I want you, your story to be told. And I don't have any, you know, financial benefit for you of this apart from I'm just, I just really want to tell, tell your story and it be used to impact other people. And when you have a clear purpose and a clear authentic reason and for no one else to doubt you, and you can talk about your life as well, just like you know we were having before this conversation you know just finding out about each other a bit we didn't need to do that but we did and it, and it means the conversation now I feel like I know you already and I trust I trust you to tell my story and it's the same thing you know you're in the position I'm usually in of like asking questions and and delving into someone else but you've told me about yourself and and so I do that as well and I say you know this is what I used to and you know when I was filming the first series in, in India um, there's one one of the films, Pankaj, and you can watch the 2020 films on, on YouTube. They're free to access. Uh, Pankaj, I spent probably two months every day on the back of his bike. But we only filmed one interview of like three or four hours. But because we've become so close. So unfortunately for filmmaking, storytelling and, and empathy in general, to get good at empathy, to, to develop your empathic muscles, to flex them, to, to make them stronger, it's time. And you need to spend time with people. And that is a, what the most important and rich commodity there is because we're all time poor and we want things, we want instant gratification. But to get those 10 minutes of like understanding someone and, and to create this pure story, you have to give your time to them. And you could be listening to them for hours and hours and hours, but keeping that focus and, and understanding those emotions. Ed, it's a, real privilege for me to talk to you it's a real privilege for me to hear what you have to say um i want the opportunity for other people to understand more about you and empathy week for them to do that where could they find more information so you can head to the empathy week website which is www.empathy-week.com 
Um, on Twitter, we are at The Empathy Week. And on Instagram, we're at Empathy Week and Facebook, Empathy Week. And then for me, I'm at Ed Kerwin. That's K-I-R-W-A-N on everything. I use LinkedIn a lot. I use Twitter a lot. Uh, Instagram, not so much, but I think that's probably a good thing. Um, and I'm just always keen to hear your thoughts and ideas. And and I think just to, just to finish on a, on a point that I want to make is that everyone has a story and everyone thinks their own life is boring. Um, you know, if you, you spoke to Barack Obama, he probably thinks his own life is boring because he has habits and routines, but everyone else thinks his life's amazing. And the important thing about that is that you have a story that's worth telling to someone else and you can inspire someone else as well. And I, I always say that to people, that your life is interesting and you have a lot of inspiration to give other people. So don't shy away from being your authentic self and don't shy away from from telling your own story to other people as well. Thank you, Ed, for taking the time to join us here on Fuse. Once again, that website is empathy-week.com. Our second guest today is Claire Bennett from the charity Mind, who joins us today to speak about support in the workplace and being there for our fellow human beings. Claire, it's such an honour to have you here on Fuse. Honour to be here, Dan. Looking forward to chatting. Mind as an organisation, it's a it's a brand that we recognise and we respect, but maybe some people just know the name and not much beyond that. Could you tell us a little bit about the organisation? Yeah, of course. So we're a mental health charity. We work in England and Wales, and our main aim is to make sure that people with mental health problems get both support and respect. Um, so we do a range of things Um campaigning on the issues that matter most to people with mental health problems we work closely with workplaces to help them create mentally healthy environments for their staff Um, and we also deliver services on the ground through our network of local minds across England and Wales. So when it comes to the workplace and the services that you offer and how how that could be an important element of organizations being aware of not only the importance of physical health for workers and for staff for their team members but also their mental wellness what are the things that you would get involved in as an organization helping these businesses yeah so we work with employers of all sizes and across different sectors to really um to to help them kind of with any problems they might be facing and to help them um, yeah, know how, how best to, to promote good well-being at work and also help them sort of tackle the causes of poor mental health at work. Um, so there's a, a range of ways that we do that. Um, often it's providing training to staff, um, particularly HR professionals and managers. Um, and we also have our Workplace Wellbeing Index, which we run every year, which is our sort of benchmark of best policy and practice when it comes to wellbeing. So we'll go in and look at various measures um, and then give um, employers a different ranking based on their performance. Um, so it's sort of gold, silver, bronze type um, style. And then we'll make recommendations for how they can do that even even better going forward. Um, but yeah, I guess the main thing we're trying to get across um, is that it's in employers' interests to to look after their staff and make sure they're feeling valued and supported. Um, and that's kind of there's a, there's a few different 
ways that we persuade them of that. Um, so there's obviously a, a business case. So, um, you know, just looking at the bottom line, uh, employers can save money if they're treating their staff well, because you're less likely to need time off sick or leave the organisation altogether if um, if you feel sort of valued and supported. Um, but more than that, we want them to, to feel sort of, you know, like a moral obligation as part of being a responsible employer and really sending that message to their staff um, that, that they know that should they need help with their mental health, they'll be met with support and understanding rather than facing stigma and discrimination. And I guess kind of one of the um, slight silver linings of the pandemic is that this issue is, is really high on employers' agendas right now. Um, so, you know, there's, there's never been a more important time really for, for employers to, to invest in staff wellbeing. The pandemic has proved to be incredibly challenging for families and individuals around the world. And one of the things that I think has made me, I wouldn't say happiest, but but most pleased that I saw was the partnership between MIND and the McLaren Formula One team. Because through that partnership, there's been global awareness, whether the people can access your services internationally or not, it's it's that awareness that's come from it. I'm here in Canada and people speak about this partnership, wow. which I think is great. Um, the transparency from Lando Norris, one of the uh, drivers for the McLaren Formula One team, him speaking openly and frankly about how he feels and his well-being has been something that's been in front of people to see well if it can if he's feeling this it's okay if I'm feeling this as well there's an element of feeling empowered or the validation of well that's how I feel or whatever it may be um I'm sure the partnership has proved to be successful not just in the in the element of fundraising but the awareness side of it Mm -hmm. as well when someone is in an organization and they feel um the liberty and to to be able to speak about how they are truly feeling it's surely got to make such a difference to their well-being and the well-being of their family and loved ones yeah i think um it's it's really difficult one because uh, obviously when someone in the public eye speaks out somebody high profile that does really um encourage other people to seek help as well we've got research that that suggests lots of people are are um Oh, sorry. <laughs> We've got research sorry. that just suggests that lots of people seek help on the back of, of seeing a celebrity that they respect or a high profile individual talking out about their own experiences. Um, I think that's especially true of men as well. Um, and, and men within sport, you know, there is still this kind of um, macho rhetoric and this sort of these gender unhelpful gender stereotypes about men not perhaps being able to show their feelings as much as as, as women and, and people who describe as other genders. Um, but we know that's kind of starting to change and that's really welcome. Uh, when it comes to the workplace, our advice is always, if you, if you feel comfortable to do so, then do talk openly about your mental health. But unfortunately, that still very much depends on the culture of the workplace. Um, and also how many other people you see, um, not just kind of senior leadership, but people, you know, of all different kind of roles and, um, and levels of, 
seniority at speaking out about their mental health. Um, but yeah, we would we would obviously hope that uh, the employer kind of fosters a culture where people do feel able to speak out about their own mental health. Um, because, you know, if, if you don't, I guess it can be harder for your employer to recognise when you might need that extra support. Um, there's a piece of legislation um, called the Equality Act 2010. Um, so under that legislation, uh, an employer has a legal duty to make reasonable adjustments for any employee experiencing a disability. And because of the definition of being disabled under the Act, um, that does cover mental health if it's got a significant, severe impact on your day-to-day life and if it's lasted for more than a year or is expected to last or, or keep recurring. So lots of people with mental health problems are actually eligible for those greater rights and protections but don't necessarily know that. Um, so one thing you could do, I mean, ideally you'd feel comfortable speaking to your manager if you if you're struggling with your mental health. Um, but if you do want that extra protection, yeah, I would suggest speaking to your manager or, or somebody from your HR team. Um, the work that we do though, it's really about kind of making sure that that support is available for everybody, regardless of disability or mental health. And then it sort of, it means that whether you're sort of out as somebody with a mental health problem or not, you're still you're still being looked after. Sometimes people feel ill-equipped or unable to do something or they feel powerless or they say, I wish I could have helped, I wish I could have done something. If someone's in the situation where they're aware that someone else, that third party is is having a rough ride, is not experiencing uh, the best of situations mm. and they feel helpless and maybe in the in this case of you know this masculine element of the workplace as there clearly is a there is a problem there um they don't want to say something they don't want to talk to the employer because it's not their place to do so they don't want to step in because well it's like dobbing someone in etc what steps could they take in a in a discreet way or in a way to really help someone who is suffering yeah i think that's a tough one as well because obviously confidentiality here is quite important so if somebody has come to you and and said that they're struggling then that's something you need to you know you're in a privileged position that they've entrusted you with that information so although you might feel like they need to raise this with their manager ultimately that would be up to them so you could sort of encourage them to talk to their manager in the first instance that's probably what I would do or just you know be there for them and also it doesn't necessarily you don't have to be an expert to talk about mental health um it can be you know somebody could just be having a hard time because of stress because of workload things like that it doesn't necessarily mean they've got a clinical diagnosis of depression or anxiety so it's really important kind of not to make assumptions about somebody else's mental health or how it could impact on them or their ability to do their job you know people with mental health problems can and do make a really valuable contribution to the workplace at mind we employ 
uh, you know, a great deal of our staff are, are people with first-hand lived experience. And, um, you know, if anything, that's kind of a, a bonus because you've got that kind of added understanding and empathy. Um, I guess there's some anonymous routes to getting support, I, but the only concern with that would be that your employer is not necessarily aware, as I say, that you're struggling um, and therefore won't necessarily offer you any extra support. But for example, if you've got an employee assistance program, lots of um, lots of employers provide that. So that's a kind of 24-hour support line through which you can access counselling or other types of therapy. Um, for men in particular, I think, well, just generally as well, there's, there's lots of kind of self-care things that you can do as well, even in lockdown. Um, so the same things that are really good for your physical health are really good for your mental health. So that's getting outside, getting sleep, regular exercise, keeping an eye on your diet, keeping an eye on your alcohol, caffeine consumption, all of those things. So, um, and I think often men find it easier to to talk to people when they're doing another task, like it might be going for a walk with somebody, you know, social distance allowing, um, and they might find that easier and, and less confrontational than than calling them up on a on a video call, for example. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really about finding finding the best way for that person to open up. And even if they don't feel comfortable talking to you, if you've asked them how, how they are, you've still let them know that you're worried about them and that they can come to you as and when they feel ready to talk about it. Claire, thank you to you and your colleagues for the important work that you do. If people wanted to find out more information on how they could put plans in place in their workplace and find help, where could they do that? Yep, so the best thing to do is to visit our website, which is www.mind.org.uk. Claire Bennett, thank you so much for joining us here on Fuse. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this very special episode of Fuse. If the topics discussed in this episode have affected you, then the contact details for Mind are linked in the episode notes. 